Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field. I'm Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, your host. And this week, I am super excited to have a fellow podcaster on as my guest. Uh, Shereen Ahmed is one of the women of the Burn It All Down podcast. The tagline of that podcast is, it may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. Um, it's a really smart, well-done podcast. I suggest you all subscribe and give it a listen. Um, I'm really happy to have her on. She's a, a freelance journalist and has a background in social work. So she approaches her writing and her podcasting um, from an angle of um, being aware of the struggles that people go through, um, particularly Muslim women um, and women of, um, uh, you know, color and varying backgrounds. Um, we have a great conversation. It's one of our shorter podcasts, but we get into a lot. Um, I hope you enjoy it. As a quick reminder, please make sure you're rating the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I have some exciting news. Um, I'm recording this on November 1st, and I just got my numbers for last month. And you guys, there are so many of you listening. So thank you so, so much. I screamed a little when I saw how many of you there are. Um, I am humbled and grateful and um, I hope that I am providing you content that you find interesting and important. Um, so now we're going to go to the interview and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Today on Leveling the Playing Field, I have Shireen Ahmed. She's a writer, public speaker, and sports activist focusing on Muslim women in sports. She's an athlete, advocate, community organizer, and works with youth of color on empowerment projects and is an avid sports coach and mentor. She is a regular contributor to Muslima Media Watch. I probably just said that wrong. Uh, I apologize. A global sports correspondent for the Safe World for Women and works for the Muslim Women in Sports website. Her work has been featured and discussed in Sports Illustrated, Policy Mike, The Globe and Mail, Jezebel, Vice Sports. I think you just name one and she's been in it. Um, and her blog, Tales from a Hijabi Footballer, where her passion for sport, politics, and women's issues collide, has been recognized by sports media for its candid discussions. Uh, she's working on her first book, which is fantastic, and I can't wait for it to come out. And um, she's also uh, on a podcast that some of you may have heard already. It's called Burn It All Down. Um, Shireen uh, is on it with Jessica Luther, um, Lizzie Gibbs, um, and a few other women. Um, and Julie DeCaro had been on it, but just left. It's a phenomenal feminist sports podcast. It talks about all the things going on in the world of sport from a feminist angle, which let's be honest, we all could use a little more of. So hi, Shireen. Hi, Bobby Sue. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Um, you are the first journalist that I have had on the podcast, and I'm really excited because it'll uh, provide a new context for people when looking at jobs in sports. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Um, the question that I tend to ask everyone at the beginning is, what made you fall in love with sports? Um, I've been playing, I've been a soccer player for more than 30 years and, um, that was it. And then I had played ice hockey. I'm Canadian. So, you know, mandatory citizenship expectation. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. Not really though. But, um, I also like played things like t-ball. I played volleyball. I ran track. I, um, you know, did like a whole bunch of stuff. I swam competitively later. I rode crew. So like there was a whole lot of sports happening. My parents or watch sports. Like I grew up watching the Minnesota Vikings lose every Sunday and my dad stayed positive and hopeful. And I think he still is. Um, you know, my <laughs> mother is probably the biggest Montreal Canadians fan ever. 
And oh, um, so, yeah, like Olympics, hockey, like you name it. It was, it, it was like a huge deal. My parents, like um, my mother still like, I remember she getting um, Wi-Fi, especially because the Olympics, she wanted to watch them at our cottage. Like she was <laughs> where there's no cell service. So like my mom's like, no, we, we need to watch the Olympics. Like she, she loves it. So there's always a sort of understanding. My dad rode crew as well. My mom is, was the table tennis champion of her medical school. Like I need to say that table tennis champion. Um, yeah. So like they were always, you know, it was fun and healthy competition was important and they always encouraged us. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then, um, you know, that's, that's how things progressed for me. And I married a basketball player, um, and just, you know, I have four kids and they all do various things. So. It's uh, it's kind of how it's still ongoing, actually. When um, when you were younger, was soccer just the sport you fell in love with right away? It was. I actually really liked that question because, like, like I said, I married a basketball player, and it took me like ten years to understand what three in the key was. Like, I just really <laughs> didn't get it, and I it just the rules were different. Soccer just seemed seamless to me, and it seemed so logical and like this idea in basketball and of like standing there and taking a charge is ridiculous. So you're basically obstructing someone else's path as they're barreling towards you. Like, why would you do that? But in in (laughs) soccer, like you would never do that in proper football. It's obstruction. Like, why would you want to stand there anyway? And the focus is the ball, not necessarily the player. Right. So, um, it, it just made sense to me. And I had a lot of energy and my parents put me on a pitch and I think I was five and we had these little t-shirts. I think polyester t-shirts is, you know, and they were like orange and yellow because without aging myself too much, they were very popular, you know, (laughs) fashion colors in the eighties. And so I just, I remember like, first of all, being the only kid, like long, thick black hair, two braids and just running around and, we, you know how when you start off and you're that young in, in, in soccer, it's just like a pack of bees chasing. Right. It, it made, it chasing the ball, and it made sense to me. And I was, I was ahead of the pack and fairly confident. And I remember once that, you know, they don't want to try you. I mean, we were even so bad. They didn't, we didn't have positions. It was kind of like you stay forward-ish, you stay back-ish. But you know how it works when you're that little playing. Like, you just run around. And um, just sort of attacking was came naturally to me and you know passing was easier for me and I try I'm still struggling with my finishing but that's okay um (laughs) I get a couple goals once in a while um and I think it's just something that I I loved and it was always it was always my passion it was always something that I just loved doing little kids when they're that age playing any sport is my favorite thing (laughs) um you know you get even you know I don't know, T-ball and they've got like the little bobblehead going on because <laughs> the helmet, it's just so, it, it's one of my favorite things about sport is when the youngsters start really getting into it. And, um, you know, I've attempted to get the cats into things like tennis and uh, <laughs> football, but, you know, they're just really good at napping. Um, but my friend's kids, you know, I, I just, I have so much fun watching them play and, um, I don't think I didn't get into sports until a little bit later on, but, um, I, it, it really is. It's one of my favorite things. I think it's so important when you're growing up to learn how to like work together and, um, to get your own confidence levels up. Yeah, totally. And I, I have my youngest, I have this photo I got of him and when he used to shoot at the free throw line and he played basketball, like he would jump so high. And I remember, I think I might've Instagrammed a picture of him. He was so far off the ground because he was so little and it was just (laughs) a magnificent photo. And like, he just, you know, they jumped so high and they're so small, but they still like, you know, as you know, you're not supposed to get your feet off the ground for a foul shot, but we like a, a free throw. Sorry. So like, you, but he was so little and he was so great. And I just remember being like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, so that was, that was pretty fun. That was pretty fun. And I agree with you. Like kids in sport are great. I mean, they can, you know, it can be the parents go like wild and nuts and make things horrible, but hopefully the experience for the kids is good. 
Oh, sure. What, um, at what age in your faith, um, do people make a decision whether or not to wear a head covering? Um, the whole idea is that, I mean, ultimately, and this is, was my experience and I can't speak for everybody. I can speak for myself and, you know, my daughter's experience actually was of course. we, I made my own decision. I was, um, I was 20, I believe when I chose to wear a headscarf, my daughter was like 14, I think. And, okay. um, so we chose, and I think it's it's sort of usually the age of like when you're finished middle school, which is like grade eight. So that's usually the time, I guess, because it's before you move on to high school. And a lot of girls we know do that. It can range though. Like some girls choose to wear it when they're younger. A lot of girls don't do it till later. And then there's also the fact that some take it off. They choose to take it off. It doesn't work for them or whatnot. Because it's never a thing that... Um, or shouldn't be like, there's just, I mean, I'm a big proponent of choice of anything. Like, I just don't think there should be discussion about what women choose to wear. Sure. Like excessive discussion, particularly about religious clothing. And, um, so the the hope is that the the girl herself is supported in whatever decision she makes. Like, I mean, my kid was going to be supported when she wore it. And I think she knew that, but you know, she didn't discuss it with me just like I didn't discuss it with my parents. I just sort of decided to do it and inform them. In fact, I have a feeling that my daughter talked to her basketball team about it before she talked to me. Um, <laughs> just, and they were amazing and supportive. And someone was like, if one of her, I think her post player was like, if anyone says anything, I will kill them. So, you know, she's, she's a regular kid and she asked her peers is what we usually do when we're that young. And God, she got that affirmation and that support and yeah. solidarity, which is, which is great. Like I did it so on the fly, like literally I didn't discuss it with anybody. It just sort of happened. But I remember going to, like, I was going into my third year at the time of university. And um, I had been one of the organizers of Frosh Week, ironically, the week that everyone's, (laughs) like, getting loaded. And we're trying to (laughs) hope these young kids don't, like, God forbid, have alcohol poisoning or something. Like, And I decided to show up that day. And everyone's like are you hot? Like, why are you wearing that on your head? Like, cause it was, you know, Labor Day weekend. It was after Labor Day. And, um, I remember that. And I remember being like, yeah, I, I'm going to do this. And it was very, it was very bizarre for me to choose that sort of theater as a place to sort of present myself. And it, it worked out fine. I had a friend, I remember Maxine and Max was amazing. And she was just like, if you need me to stand by you, I'm going to stand by you all day. And I remember her saying this to me and I was kind of like, what do you mean? Because I had forgotten I had it on, but nobody else did. And right. uh, so that's that's kind of funny. Um, the reason I ask is because of something that you talk about a lot, which is um, the ability for young women, if they so choose, to be able to wear a hijab while they're playing sport. Um, you know, we whether it be soccer or basketball and... Um, you know, was your, was your daughter's school and whatever league, I guess, or conference that she's part of okay with her wearing it while she played? Um, I think absolutely. I mean, she, she was in a different, she's in a different time and place than I, I was. Sure. Um, the FIFA ban had already been lifted. Um, mm-hmm. When she started, because um, it was left in 2014, their hijab ban, the FIBA ban is now, but the FIBA ban only applied to professional players, not to like um, the uh, Canadian Intercollegiate Athletics or the NCAA. So if she chose to play ball, sh- she could. Um, but, you know, e- I mean, even within the soccer realm, the, the community was a bit different. I certainly wasn't playing professional. I was playing intercollegiate sports. I was playing varsity. I played for U of T. And when I chose to wear mine starting third year, I didn't play soccer again because it was made really clear that that wouldn't be happening because of the choice that I did make. So um, that was that was really hard um, for yeah. me. And it was like, it's something I do talk about a lot. And it's what very much propelled me to write about stuff like this and why I talk about um, you know, inequality in sports and injustice in sports and, you know, systematic misogyny in federations and why. And 
you know, I've, I've done a lot of work on this and a lot of research, and it's literally men in boardrooms making decisions about what women wear across the board. And that's right. what I've found to be true. And and when I was doing research during the Olympics, there was an Egyptian beach volleyball player named Doa El-Habashi. And she was, Doa was the first woman in, you know, sort of volleyball history to be permitted to wear a headscarf on, on, the, on, on the court, the beach court. And um, she did. And what I, I came at the story thinking that it was just sort of Muslim women that were banned because in other federations it was Muslim women, Sikh men, and Jewish men who are kippot, um, Sikh men who are a turban that were prevented. So it wasn't only Muslim mm-hmm. women that were prevented. It was any head coverings. So, so I went to the Volleyball Federation thinking, but what I found out was that even female players, the, the width and, and centimeters of their bikini bottoms and their like bra sports tops were mandated in terms of inches or centimeters. And what? yeah, and I didn't know this and it completely blew my mind, but it reaffirmed what I'd always believed that this is sincerely an attack on what women wear and what they choose to wear. Like it was, it was mandated in terms of inches, the, the, like the bikini bottom. And there was a player from the Netherlands and her name's, her name escapes me, but she had a type of, not a burn, but she had some type of issue that she couldn't be exposed to the sun. And she had to get, and the article that I read was in Dutch and it was not translated into English, so I used Google Translate. And she basically <laughs> had to get the doctors to um, write her letters upon letters. She had to have a dossier of medical proof to say she wanted to wear a rash guard for a previous oh competition God. until they said, this is like someone said, this is really ridiculous. But... So, like, it just goes to show, like, the rules are so arbitrary and people are just like, oh, um, this looks to be unsafe. We're not going to have it. Oh, a headscarf is probably unsafe. Let's just ban it. Like, do you actually have any proof on that? And have you actually had a discussion with any Muslim woman about that? The answer is no. Um, And also, like, in my work researching FIFA, you... Like, I looked for any case of a Muslim woman getting hurt from a hijab or hurting someone else. There is absolutely no case like this on record documented in any federation, in any organization, in any club, because it doesn't exist. Well, right. What would the injury be? Somebody accidentally grabs at it? Well, hi, have you seen everyone's ponytails? Well, also, in, I think the risk of asphyxiation was was the medical rule used for, I think it was rule Interesting. 1.44 in, for FIFA. For FIBA, it was 4.42, but um, uh, 4.4.2, I don't know. Well, whatever. And the idea is that, yeah, you could die by strangulation. Yes. Of course, if I stood there and someone pulled on my hijab for like a minute and a half and stood there when nobody intervened or I didn't fight back. Yeah. I mean, I play soccer still with a hijab on. And the worst thing that's ever happened to me is I've headed the ball and it falls off. Like that's, (laughs) and it's happened and it's embarrassing and the ref doesn't stop the play. I pick it up, I put it on again and we keep moving. I mean, my, my teammates are pretty cool. If they see that happens, the one thing they do is kick the ball out. So that I oh, that's it nice. buys me a couple seconds, and like <laughs> I remember once a girlfriend of mine was really like into it, and she kicked it so far and hard it got lost in the woods behind the pitch, and everyone was annoyed. <laughs> but um, you know, like just sort of like just to, just to move, like if someone gets injured, you kick the ball out, like you know, similar just to buy some time. Um, right. But there's never been an injury, and and I think like I fab the governing body of FIFA actually spent a lot of time and money researching this medically. And, and I'll say one more thing about this is that if that case did exist, it would be plastered everywhere as the example for why not to let women play with oh, a headscarf for on. sure. So I, I firmly believe there is no such thing. And I've actually had a conversation with Moya Dodd, who's a huge advocate of the women's game. She was on the X committee. Um, mm-hmm. She was, sorry, in the executive committee um, uh, a couple of years ago for FIFA and she ran again, but she lost, which is also a sexist conspiracy. I know. I saw that. I want to, I want to try and have her on. I think she'd be phenomenal. Yeah. Moya is, is a guardian of the game and she's, she's a phenomenal person and she is actually way too, um, way, way too modest to admit that she was one of the huge forces behind the decision in FIFA. She advocated so strongly 
um, the um, Asian Football Confederation really, really helped push this and because she cared. And that's one of the reasons why I think these type of laws in sports federations don't move as quickly because there's no push from the inside. Like with FIBA, there was no push from the inside. There was nobody in the boardroom that cared because a, there's like no women of color in particular, no Muslim woman. And the same thing with other federations. Like we're seeing it with the uh, boxing federations still haven't allowed it. So there's young women that are barred from like boxers. I just saw one in Germany. There's one named Amaya Zephyr who I've written about. She's in Minneapolis. So mm-hmm. we see these and, you know, it kind of makes you think, well, who's making these rules? And we know who's making the rules, the men in the boardrooms. <laughs> yeah. I, it's always interesting to me, the, the really random rules that come up, anything that has to do with what you're allowed to wear. I mean, I've had this discussion with Sally Burgesson at Wazell. Yeah, about, I love Sally. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, she's great. She was my first guest. Oh, I love her. Yeah, she's uh, phenomenal. But we had this discussion because, it, I mean, her big thing is just pushing against um, uh, you know, the standard how things have been done because she wants her um, athletes to be able to get, you know, their, I don't know, the value, I guess, from sponsorships, right? Mm-hmm. And in running in particular, track and field, it's that's a really tough thing to do with one giant company um, having control over um, the USTAF. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of people might not know what Wazel did um, for Muslim women in sport, is that for Sarah Tara, yeah, right? Sarah Tara, and um, that was significant because she was one of the she was one of the first athletes to represent Saudi, and her having a kit that met their requirements in terms of modesty and their team requirements for women um, was huge, and it, it it was it was because of Wazal, and they believed in her, and they heard her story, and they were like, we want to help out because the idea is for me that so it's embodies solidarity is that they support her choice. Right. Instead of so, can you sorry? Will you um, go back a little bit and maybe explain that story about Sarah Tar and um, you know what? I know she's a runner. She's a long distance runner, right? Marathon yeah. or half marathon, and um, Saudi Arabian. So she wears. Yeah, I mean, her kit includes leggings mm-hmm. and long sleeves and and a headscarf. Correct. Yeah, um, it does. And the really good thing about that is that um, they took into consideration what she would need. And they listened and they really, really, really heard what would work. And they looked at fabric and they looked at design and they said, let's try this. And I think that's really important because it meets requirements of, you know, whatever federation has requirements. and it, the team and what the, their team uniform needs to look like. But there was a little bit of flexibility because she was one of the first ones. The other one was right. uh, a, a Taekwondo athlete. And um, I think that her uniform and her kit was very different. And what she was allowed to wear was very different as well. And um, so as far as Sara goes, um, you know, it was it was great. And I had this conversation as well with... Um, Lauren Fleshman and uh, she yes. interviewed me and just sort of being like, it was so cool how a world kind of came together because they were like, Oh, we know Sarah. Do you know of her? I'm like, do I know of her? Like, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> She's hugely important in the history of like women's athletics in the Middle East, particularly in Saudi Arabia. And like them just sort of doing that for her was, was great. Like they, they design helped. She designed it with them. They, you know, put in the hours, they put in the work, they put in the time. And, you know, she didn't, she didn't meddle, but like her actually participating was incredible. And she's a fellow runner. And I think that's just, that that whole story is really great. It's a story about solidarity in sport and, you know, like, and ultimately about feminism in sport and, and, and just literally supporting another athlete for the love of that sport. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and Sally and her company do that really well. Um, You know, they, I think that she is just on the constant, like, girl bandwagon, like, let's get, you know, let's get everyone at the same rate of pay. Let's do sponsorships differently. I love how she does her athlete sponsorships for her elite athletes. They're actually partners in business and not just, hey, we're giving you money, wear our stuff. 
and, you know, and, and constantly, you know, um, pushing the line and, and trying to, to break boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, um, that story with, with Sarah is, is great because it, I mean, they have all of the resources available to be able to do that. And, mm-hmm. and you know that the other companies do too, but would they have gone to those lengths? And, um, I mean, we're seeing now that, I mean, I think it's what been a year or two that Nike has had. They came out in the um, spring. Uh, they were in the spring in the, in the spring and, um, you know, like that's, that's great in the sense of, you know, that's really important, but I actually did write about this. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that's, it's just the idea that Nike did it first is wrong because I wrote about this and they weren't like modest. I'm actually working on a piece. I've been working on a piece for months about this because there's so much information about the history of modest sportswear Um, and what that looks like and how we think, Nike, and so many people didn't even know it existed, but I've had capsters on my radar for almost 17 years. Wow. Um, they've been there because, like, I'm in the circles where these kind of questions are asked and people find out. And this is before the internet. Well, this is in the beginning of the internet. But, you know, right. I found out and I was lucky because I was interested back then and I followed news and these kinds of things then. So I was lucky to find out about them. Um, and people like, Oh, have you know, and I was tagged. I don't even know how many times when that article came out. Hey, did you see this? I'm like, yes. But then did you see this? And then I approached the guardian and said, you know what? I'm done complaining. Cause I had a whole thread about it that listen before right. you, you know, and because like Nike also has this massive corporate monopoly and I get it. Like, I'm not saying I'm not going to take any of their swag if they offer it to me. Like I totally will. But, um, just the idea that they were the first ones. Do I think it'll help Muslim women in sport? Absolutely. Do I think it'll help normalize what athletes can be or not normalize, but change the idea of what an athlete looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's such a powerhouse. So right. that will be helpful. And I'm up for anything that does that. But right. I'm real also really, you know, concerned with like historic accuracy. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's the, it's the savior complex, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and we get it you know, with pretty much anything, you know, a female suggests something and guy says the same thing right after her in a board meeting and everyone agrees with the guy. Yeah. Like, you know. And, you know, for Atar and Wajdan Sharkani, that's her name, the, uh, the uh, judo. She said, sorry, she wasn't Taekwon. I said Taekwon. She was a judo athlete. But for them to go out and do what they did was, was phenomenal. And for, at the time, there was no Nike. In fact... There are, like, capsters told me, I interviewed Cindy Vanderbremen, who is the, uh, so sort of the creative head person. She's lovely. Um, mm-hmm. And she said that she actually approached big names, uh, like, you know, those <laughs> sports. And back then, very many, many years ago, and they sort of said, you should do this yourself, because at the time there wasn't necessarily considered a market for it. And grassroots stuff, and we still see the the rise of grassroots um, projects like crowdfunding, like there's a one called right. Asia in Minneapolis and they're doing a great job. Another one called Sukun in, out of New York city. And, and so there's more. And then you have, yeah. Yeah. And you've got Ibtihaj Muhammad's, uh, Luella. Yeah. That's, that's not, she doesn't actually do athletic wear. She does like fashion. Oh, she does. Yeah. She's just like oh. beautiful dresses and like, like pants and like long tunics and stuff like that. She doesn't actually gotcha. do um, sports, the sports, wear, wear. sports, wear, yeah. interesting. Yeah. I thought that would be her go-to, but mm-hmm. it's actually, it's actually not because <laughs> I mean, she would have like I an mean, automatic market for it. Kind of. Sure. Well, I think she's got an automatic market no matter what, right. Yeah, because of true. her, her, um, great success as an athlete, mm-hmm. it gives her that platform. And so it's a, it's a great use of that platform too, I think. Right. to, to be able to get the press and the attention on a clothing line and, um, and models that may not otherwise have gotten that attention. Yeah. Like she's, and, and she, like she does a great job marketing and she really loves it. And she really like, she's beautifully put together all the time. Like I had the opportunity to meet her last year. She spoke at an event in Toronto and I went and she was like lovely and she's so articulate and, you know, that's another thing. Like, she's a huge athlete activist that I look to, and she spoke out before the Olympics, even though that 
could have cost her sponsors, but she, you know, she sat at a hotel in Beverly Hills with a visa sweatshirt on and she talked about very openly how the presidential campaign was, you know, was harrowing for her and that, and it was also frightening and it had, you know, affected people in her community as a black woman and as a Muslim woman. And because she said, you know, I, I don't put these identities aside. It's who I am. And so that was really right. like, she's she's tremendous. And, you know, sports is a vehicle for her. And she uses her platform really wisely. Like she was just on a uh, panel, I think I saw last week or the week before with Dr. John Carlos, who famously put his fist up in the 68 yep. games. And with uh, Mahmoud Abdel-Rauf, who protested in the NBA and, you know, his was blackballed for it. And this yep. is in the 90s, I believe, early 90s. And um, no, no, was it early 90s? And um, so, you know, he's basically, these are people that have done what they've done before CAP, but like just to sort of prove that there's a history there through sport for activism. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I have to tread carefully here, but I do think that... Um, Anybody who says that sport and activism are two separate lanes has no idea what the hell they're talking about. Um, I mean, it, it just from the beginning of, of time, I feel like we've utilized sport as a way for social change and for, um, you know, a, a, a means for activism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the um, people that actually... You know, I love talking about this, but um, (laughs) the people that actually say uh, sports shouldn't be political are people from tremendous privilege who actually don't have to face any type of those systems of oppression at all. So, you know, I don't people that say, oh, I don't want my sports political. They're from people with the most privilege in society. And I'm talking about white, able-bodied, cishet men who just are like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. I want to lose myself. But for so many of us, we can't lose ourselves. Like we can't separate our identities from like the court or the pitch or the the turf or whatnot. So it's not possible to do that. Right. I mean, I think it's one of those things where if you were to ask one of those people to separate something from their life that is so integral to their identity, Mm -hmm. And say, okay, now you're not going to be able to talk about your dog buddy, you know. (laughs) Um, You know what I mean? Like, you can't, you, nope, nope, we don't want to hear about your dog. I I hate putting it in these terms because it it kind of um, minimizes it almost to a joke. But it's truly people who've never had to experience Mm -hmm. um, any of the issues that, are being protested at any point in time mm-hmm. um, that, you know, make these comments. And then the other response is, well, it's not meant to make you comfortable. I mean, that's the whole point of it. Um, uh, so, it, you know, I love, um, I was, I, I'm going to be interviewing um, for the podcast this is breaking news, everyone listening. Um, Lindsay Kagawa Kolos, um, uh, Ibti Haj's um, uh, agent. And I'm super excited about that because um, I think she's just going to be tremendous too. She's super smart. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's part of history, actually. Yeah, and, and it's unbelievable how little people know about it. And I say unbelievable, but I like, of course, it's believable because look at every other woman who's, you know, broken through and, and made a pathway. Um, they tend to not get that recognition and, and she certainly doesn't get enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were, um, you went to University of Toronto, correct? I know you said UT earlier. So I just, for, for those who are way too focused on the United States, it is not University of Texas. <laughs> no, it's not UT um, Austin. Yeah. Or, no. or University of Tampa, because that's what they call right. University of Tampa. Um, how did you decide on what you were going to major in? What, what was it in your background that pushed you towards that? 
Um, I actually didn't do journalism, and that's why I get invited to speak a lot at journalism conferences because they're like, what do you mean you didn't, speak a you didn't do journalism? I'm like, no, <laughs> I did not, actually. I um, took women's studies and political science, and I loved that. And then I actually went into um, social services. Like, I was a frontline worker in social services. Um, I did cases of you know, of uh, domestic violence and sexualized violence of newcomers and refugees to Canada. So I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah. So I, but what I did was I, you worked with a youth group and what ended up happening was I used sports as a means, a sort of therapeutic means. So we had outings, like it took kids to hockey games. It took, we tried, we did soccer with newcomers because one of the languages, we, I had a lot of clients with language barriers. The one language they did speak was football. The one language they did speak was basketball sure. or badminton or whatever it was. And I mean, as part of like uh, an organization with like budget restrictions, like soccer is a really easy way to get 22 people involved in a game for very cheap. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, it's really good. And so it worked and just seeing them, like, I mean, I even was part of a project, just a sort of very informal project working with Syrian refugee children that came to Canada. Um, it would be like over a year ago I did that. Um, and that's like almost two years ago, actually. And that was really important too, because it gave the kids a sense of normalcy. It's what they used to do. Like, they didn't ask to be moved and their homes decimated and their communities gone. And they didn't want, you know, right. everything to be ravaged in war and lose family members and loved ones. So they just want to be kids. So it gave them a place to come and do that. And what better way to do it through sport? And of course, I made sure there was a girls session, obviously. Right. Of course. <laughs> of course, which is great. So um, the women's studies and poli-sci, how did you get to that point? What was it um, that you were drawn to? Um, I just was really keen on studying. Like, I'm fairly boring. I really was interested in Canadian constitutional politics and, like, would read DLRs, Dominion Law Reports, for fun. People are like, that is so boring. I say, I actually remember telling Jessica this, Jessica Luther, and she's like, why? And I was like, I don't know. And I was like, I just, I found it fascinating. I find law fascinating. And yeah. I really liked it. And it was just, it was so, it was like super ultra Canadian. I remember walking into a class taught by a, um, a professor that like I just really enjoyed and it was Canadian constitutional law. So we talked about, you know, Morgan Toller v. the Queen. Like we talked about things that were like huge cases in Canadian law history, like stuff like abortion, stuff like um, things that really made a difference and an impact in this country and the culture of this country. And I really liked that. And then, of course, I paired that with uh, women's studies. Back then it was women's studies. Now it's gender studies. And wow. um, we talked about stuff like that. Like I. Yeah, I felt happy there. Like I, it, it just, it was a lot of, at the time, it was a lot of writing off the tales of second wave feminism, but like I read Audre Lorde there for the first time. I read more about Angela Davis. I read more about, um, you know, South Asian feminists. I got exposure to Latin American women. Um, and, and that was really important too, like to sort of see the variety of different things and struggles and resistance of women across the world. So that was, that was really, that was really like, I mean, I remember the first passage I wore Arundhati Roy was there and, you know, learned to think critically. And that, I mean, I also, you know, wasn't the greatest space. It was a very, very, very white space, even though it was women's studies. And, sure. and it wasn't as intersectional as it would be now for sure, in terms of the recognition and critical analysis. Um, but it was, you know, it was a smaller department. It still is, like, considering all the money that U of T has. But it was it was great for me. It's obviously something that you're passionate about. And I'm always really interested in how people choose these different pathways, right? How they choose their majors. Like, I, for whatever reason, knew I only wanted to go to UMass and I wanted to be in their sport management program. <laughs> I, yeah. Couldn't have told you exactly why, um, but it sounded really cool to me. Yeah. And, and, and obviously at the end of the day, it's, it worked out, but there are some people who are more deliberate in their, in their choices. So it's interesting, but it, 
from the work that you do now, Mm -hmm. it's very clear that, you know, you've had a passion for, um, you know, equality and women's rights and, and learning more about the historical context of it all, everything that you all do on burn it all (laughs) down. You, you guys do a great job of giving context for things. I've learned so much about things that I never even thought about. Um, the one thing in particular I, I will keep in my head forever, you were talking about the, I think, concussion protocol in soccer mm-hmm. and, and the heading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just sitting there. I think I was getting ready for work, mm-hmm. listening to it. And I just dropped a makeup brush and like slack jaw looked at myself in the mirror going, what? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but, um, no, I'm like, that means a lot to us that we're, you know, reaching people and we're working with people and we are like, you know, we're learning as well. Like, I mean, having, we've just been joined by Amiros Davis and she's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like her knowledge of historical things, like she does race and gender. And she is talking about, like I went to a presentation of her at a conference last year and she had a presentation on black women roller derby players. And I was like in the set in the seventies and it blew my <laughs> mind. Cause I mean, I'm a huge fan of derby just because I think it's a really interesting sport. And I'm a fan because like when Trump announced his, um, you know, three times defunct, uh, Muslim ban travel ban, the first federation sports federation in the world to speak out against it was flat track roller derby. Oh, that's interesting. And a lot of people don't know this. And the reason I know this is I have a couple of friends and even on Burn It All Down in our Pride Party episode during Pride Week, um, Pride Month rather, <laughs> a friend of mine, uh, a trans woman named Alex Hanna, we we talked about that and I got into Derby because of Alex and because of another friend of mine named Cricket and Cricket invited me out because they're trying to sort of amplify like diversity in roller derby. Sure. And I went out to blow the whistle with a, a player of a CFL player named Matt Black. And we went to go like ceremoniously blow the whistles at the semifinals of their league. And that was amazing. And it's just a really cool space. It's a very cool internet space. Um, internet space. Sorry. Feminist <laughs> space. Um, and I was just really, it was exciting to see and the fact that they had done that. And the idea that sports couldn't be political and didn't have to be political was rejected immediately by this entire group. And the reason why was because they were expected to have one of their competitions in the United States. And the teams from Sweden and Denmark had former refugees on them from those nations. And they said straight out, we are not putting any of our athletes in this type of position. We're not jeopardizing anything. Like we are all together We're in solidarity. So they moved the tournament to Europe. Wow. Just in support of, like, that's how quick it was. It was like a no-brainer for them. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we we saw an impact on NBA players last year, mm-hmm. um, which I, it, I was just, I, I can't get into this right now because I'll just go on for 1,400 hours. But um, mm-hmm. it's it's great to know that there are those diverse and really interesting sports that provide that space to be able to, you know, um, be as intersectional as possible and, um, and aware of what's going on in, in the world, (laughs) basically, as opposed to kind of being in, in your own little bubble, um, which I feel like I'm, is my constant I'm trying to get out of as much as I can. Right. And learn. And, um, so yeah. And, and you, your personal passion when it comes to these topics has been really fun for me to listen to and to learn from when, um, when you were working with the agency, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what was, what was one of the hardest things that you had to handle? Um, I think for me, and, and I, truth be told, I worked there for almost you know, more than five years and I burned out just because it was a lot. Um, which happens when, pretty which often. With, with frontline work, it, it does. Yeah. Um, when somebody would come forward with abuse. Um, yeah. I think I got, 
I got uncomfortable with how normal that came for me. And this, the situations and the people that, you know, sort of disclosed that, that abuse, mm-hmm. how, and you don't want to be too, um, too robotic, but it became motion because a way of coping with intake of all this stuff is to be robotic, is to be professional. And, you know, one of the pieces of advice, um, which, you know, I'm not currently employed there anymore, so it's totally fine for me to say in HR, hear me say that, was not to touch physically the clients. But if there's a woman breaking down in your office, you your natural instinct is to reach out and hold her hand. Yeah. And yeah. you pass her tissues and you get her water and sometimes they need you to hold them. And I did. And how you do that and you kind of hold your own rage and grief aside to console someone else. And then you have to move forward and think, okay, how are we going to handle this? Like, what are our options? And you don't make any decisions, but that's something that really meant a lot to me was trying to provide as many options as possible for the client so they could make their decision or whatever decision that would be around family, around finances, around safety, around anything, but to move as quickly as possible with the resources that you have. And um, one thing I really appreciated, and you know, you hear a lot of things from social workers and agencies like pushing for numbers and outcomes, but how generous people were with sharing information. Like a lot of colleagues that didn't even work at the same place, I would say, I need this. I remember I had a French speaking woman from the Republic of Congo and the DRC, um, and she was stuck between cracks because she was a French speaker, but she wasn't eligible to the type of services that were offered for French speakers because she wasn't yet a citizen. So, like, she was falling between the cracks yeah, just because of bureaucracy. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, I need to get her help. And I remember just feeling so frustrated and calling up an agency that didn't know me, they didn't know my work, and said, we will absolutely help you. Send her to us. And you will keep CCing you. We'll CC your manager, whatever you need. But we will, we will, like, we're not going to let her go. Like, she, we will help her. We will find a way. And that kind of attitude, that tenacity and commitment, that's still something that I think I feel like I want to do for other women. Like, I'd, you know, sort of identify as a sports activist. But people come to me and say, this federation is unfair. I had a cl- close friend who, and this is like one of the powers of Twitter. I love, I love the story. <laughs> like, you know, Twitter is a cesspool of misogyny and like racism sure. and everything else, transphobia and just horrible bigotry. But it can also be a place of some light and some joy. And I had a very close friends. Her daughter are in Accra Gymnastics and she wanted them to wear like unitards, like half unitards to their knees. And the club was like, no, you can't. You have to wear very, very short bodysuits. And she just said, well, my daughter's not very comfortable doing that. She'd just like to wear shorts even, not even the longer ones, just the shorter ones. They're like, no, 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 no. And th- like like I said, the um, re- immediate knee-jerk response when people ask for some type of accommodation, no matter how minimal, is no. And so she called me and I said, I'm going to help you out. So I got into Twitter and I'm like, <laughs> Twitter, friends can you help me out? I need to know anyone who knows anything about gymnastics in Ontario. And just coincidentally, a friend of mine, who's like a national reporter at like a national paper said, Hey, a best friend of mine that I grew up with is actually really involved. And she introduced us via Twitter. Um, We started DMing. It just so happens that this person is like high up in the executives of there. And I said, do you happen to have a handbook of the international standard guidelines? She's like, of course I am. I'm going to email it to you. So she emailed me this PDF and I went through it very carefully, fine tooth comb. And I found the passage that actually permits young competitive, even in competition, young athletes and gymnasts in acro to wear like even leggings and like, like a unitard that's full leggings, not hmm. just shorts. And I was like, Oh, this is so great. So, so I highlighted. had no idea. Yeah, they didn't because like this is the international governing body now, which all federations that are associated with it, like the Ontario Gymnastic Association would be uh, umbrellaed under Canada. They'd be associated who then would be umbrellaed under, you know, the International Federation. And um, so they had mandated that it was fine. So I highlighted all of the stuff and I sent it back. And I said, do you want me to go in there, you know, guns blazing? And she's like, no, I can, I'll take it from here. And they were like, 
they were gobsmacked that A, she had access to this information because the first question that the coach asked was not, I didn't know this, was where did you get this? <laughs> of course. Because this isn't accessible publicly. Yeah. I mean, you could put in, I, you know, you could ask media requests, you could ask for information, but I got the whole file. Right. And I printed out the, you know, necessary chapter and was just like, listen, like, this is legit. And you should pull it off that bookshelf in that binder and take a look at it. And, you know, they were not thrilled, but her daughter's competing. That's great. I mean, and, you know, for you to still be advocating and helping people um, in the space of sport as opposed to in the space of resettlement or, um, you know, domestic or sexual violence, um, you know, to be able to take that passion for helping people and, and to move it forward into this other space that you've clearly um, love. Oh, hello. Oh, hi. <laughs> no, I'm just saying hello to your doorbell. Oh, um, yeah. They're, they're back. <laughs> um, when did you start the writing? Um, you know, you, your, your blog is phenomenal and, and you have a lot of articles also up there. And I mean, I feel like it's every few weeks you've got something new out. Um, (laughs) how, and I am really bad at gauging time right now. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like two months feels like a week. So I don't really understand anything. Um, you know, where did that start and, and what really propelled it? Um, it was the writing and it was literally me writing because I wasn't happy with the way other people were writing. And that's honestly where it came from. And the freelance hustle is a really hard one. And I don't know if it's sustainable long-term. Like I love writing, but it's just, I don't have a staff job and you know, I, it's not, it's not the greatest because you just, you're literally pitching all the time. And someone asked me, what do you do for a living? I'm like, well, I drive my kids around and I get rejected on pitches. Like that's what I said, because sometimes it feels like that. And I do realize and recognize that I have a lot of privilege in terms of the places I've got some really great bylines. I have educational privilege and class privilege. And I see that. And so -hmm. much of this industry is who, you know, and like my demographic, who is a woman of color, a visible woman of color is the least paid. In fact, the Women's Media Center doesn't even have stats from the last report on how people, how many women there are of color in the industry because there's so few in editorial roles and executive decision-making roles, like that kind of thing. And yeah. there are women and then there's people of color, but they don't have a woman of color because there's just so few. And um, I, I, I find that, you know, so like opportunities like burn it all down. Like I love this podcast. Like I am very close friends with the women on it. You know, like I met um, Brenda around the same time. No, I met Brenda. I think Brenda was the first one I met who's an associate professor at Hofstra. And we hit Mm -hmm. it off immediately. Like we shared a car to the conference at Duke from, I met her in 2015 and in the spring of 2015. And it hasn't been very long, but it feels like I've known her my whole life. Right. And, um, it was, it was just, I met her and we sat in the car and she's like, don't you feel like this conference is super white? And I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, who is this like mighty tiny person? And um, yeah, it was just, it was incredible. And then I met Jessica in person as well later that spring. And I'd known of Jessica's work and stuff, but right. I hadn't known her personally. And then we got to be really, really good friends and same with Lindsay. Like Lindsay's, I, I don't know how Lindsay writes the way she does daily. Like I honestly oh my don't gosh. know. And her beat, like anytime I speak to young journalists, because I'm invited to go to conferences, like there's one in Canada in January and I, they asked me to speak because my path in this industry wasn't traditional. So they want to just a heads up on that. Like how did it happen kind of thing, that story. Like Lindsay to me, I, I go to every presentation and name her off just because of the work she does and the way how careful she is in her reporting whether it's on like sexualized violence in sport, whether it's on misogyny or even race, like Lindsay Gibbs is just incredible. And um, 
you know, I'm happy to see her. She broke some really great stories recently. The one on ESPN wanting to fire Jamel and sorry, not wanting to fire, wanting to keep her off the air or whatnot. And so, yeah, she'll kill me if I get that wrong. (laughs) So, um, like that. And, you know, Amira joining us, like I met Amira this spring, like early in the summer and she just blew me away completely. Like I'd heard about her. Then I saw her present her work and then for her to be an academic who is so damn articulate and just has this absolutely brilliant thing to say every time we talk about something and like Jessica and her work, which has been, you know, on the forefront of so many conversations and so oh crucial, my gosh. Yeah. so crucial in making change in this industry mm-hmm. and this, and the way that she talks about reporting. And there's one lesson that I cite off when I talk, which is from Jessica, which is who is telling the story is as important as the story itself. And that right. has changed so much of the way I think. Like I don't uh, write about LGBTIQ issues because I don't identify as from that community. And why would I? Why Why should I? I should amplify someone from that community who has like lived experience and more knowledge and more depth and just stuff like that. Like, um, you know, this is how I feel similarly on race and it's not, like it's not something that's well received all the time, but I think that people of color and particularly women and non-binary folks of color have an incredible insight into these discussions and they're overlooked very often. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, not just, you know, when, when you have, if you take something like what Jessica talks about. And for those listening, we're talking about Jessica Luther, who um, the vast majority of her work is focused on sexual violence and sport. Uh, And it's incredibly important and so good um, what she does. And it's difficult. Um, and, And imagining her work coming from a male is near impossible. Yeah, I don't. I, you know what I yeah, mean? I don't think it would. Yeah. <laughs> it, I don't think it would work. Yeah. Um, it, and, it, and so I completely understand what you're saying with, you know, um, and I think it's um, super nice of you to, um, to think that way. Well, I mean, also the idea of um, there are, uh, there's a sort of a, not a program, but there's something called Use the Right Words, which is a campaign for, you know, reporters and stuff. It's a free media toolkit by an organization called Femifesto in Canada. And I know the Chicago Task Force has it similarly in the U.S. Um, they also have a media toolkit on how to report accurately when reporting about these type of crimes and these type of cases. And I don't understand why every editor in, like in Canada or the U.S. don't use these. They're free. Yeah, They've been put together by people who know what they're talking about. And, you know, I will, I wrote about, um, I actually won an award for this piece I wrote about David De Gea, who is the goalie for the Manchester United football team and football club. And he was implicated in a very serious uh, case of sexualized violence. And we went through it with a fine tooth comb, but I wanted to make sure that what I was saying was fair to the survivor. And because it comes from this perspective of let's, you know, a system like innocent into proving guilty because with this very famous case in Canada and just, you know, trigger warning for listeners, Jan Rameshi, we saw that being, you know, proven, sorry, being acquitted doesn't mean you haven't committed the crime. Those are two completely different things. And sure. being acquitted could mean there's just not sufficient evidence according to the law. It doesn't mean you haven't actually done it. And we know this. We know this is a system that isn't built to help survivors. We know this. And, right. you know, as far as like the work that just does and that beat, I mean, I was on a plane on the way back from Oregon and early last year. And um, what ended up happening was, or in the spring, and a very nice lady was sitting beside me and she's like, well, what do you do, dear? And I was like, <laughs> oh, I write about... Um, racism and misogyny in sports and she was like why (laughs) like why don't you write about your kids and your family and I'm like well I subsequently do that too like I have a parenting column that I 
which I kind of started recently and I contribute to a parenting uh, column rather. And that's really fun for me. But like, I was kind of sitting there going, she's <laughs> right. Why do I do this? This is like, so why wouldn't I just open a cat cafe or something, you know? Which I mean, is not a terrible idea. So, that would be amazing. <laughs> and, and, um, so you and I actually have this in common, our love of cats. Yes, um, I, <laughs> I know that you um, lost one of your sweet fur balls this uh, past summer, correct? I did. I did. Or baby. Um, I did. And that was tough. I know. I, I remember watching and like trying to make you feel a little bit better on the Twitter. Um, this is how we all know each other now. <laughs> yeah, the Twitter. Yeah. Um, but, um, and you mentioned that you, now, did you have two at the time? I did. I have one, as you know, uh, Zaytun right. called him Tuna, passed away. And then we have Tara, who's still with us and who commands our lives. And so you have, just do- <laughs> you have somehow managed to not smuggle home a kitten? Um, that's a really great, great point. I'm not there yet. I was almost there and yeah. it didn't happen. Um, yeah, I think that's what I was referencing because I remember you saying something in the last few months being like, or the last month or so being like, what if I were to randomly bring home? Yeah, and that's how we baby. got like Thara. That's how she came. It was just very last minute and very like, this is what's happening. And um, she was beautiful. This is like, we got her five years ago. Um, and it just, you know, where it was like Tuna's death was really like traumatic and it was really sad. And I'm, for one, I'm just not, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm just not there yet. And you're not there yet. Yeah, I get it. And, you know, like he, we had him for such a short time, but he just made such an impact. And, you know, I could talk about cats all day, like, oh my goodness, and how great he was. It'll be, we'll do another episode about cats. It'll be another oh, episode. Yeah. We'll have a cat, we'll have a cat lady episode. No, it'll be all That'll be fun. That. And, you know, just, um, actually I found an old picture of Thara, which is on our fridge when she was a kitten. And she's just like, oh, she's so cute. I'm going to tweet it to you. She's so cute. And. Oh, please do. I'll, I'll throw it on the blog post for this episode whenever I get, oh, yeah. whenever I get around to posting it, as all my listeners know, I just and bad about the posting on the blog. <laughs> and I, I um, really love uh, pictures of baby animals, particularly like, you know, Uh-oh. other baby goats oh. or like who are just adorable or like. Don't get me started on goats. You know, I love them. Goats owl. of anarchy is like my favorite thing. <laughs> exactly. And- That's great. And, you know, <laughs> owls in like lopey sweaters and hats and stuff yeah. like that. Baby owls in like sweaters. Like that's just yeah. so cute. So yesterday was Halloween and my, you know, you've got Anna Marie Cox and, mm-hmm. um, Darth and all these, you know, you know, we rate dogs, all of these funny, well, Anna Marie is actually very serious as well, but, um, you know, posting these pictures of other people's animals and costumes. And it's all I was looking at yesterday. <laughs> I'm very easily distracted. Um, we're going to wrap up, um, here, but I would like to know, um, you know, what is it that you're working on and what is it that, um, my listeners and I can, can do to, to help you and anything that you're working on? Um, well, as you know, I'm part of burn it all down, which you can find us at burn it all down pod on the Twitters. We have a website, uh, burn it down, burn it all down, uh, pod.com and just sort of listen, subscribe, rate, share with your friends. We're just trying to get the word out there. And I really appreciate you having me on Bobby Sue, cause this is great. I have a website, um, com. My work is there. It is not updated. <laughs> you, you will, <laughs> we were just talking, we were just talking about, about that. <laughs> um, I am on Twitter. Um, and, uh, it is, at underscore Shireen Ahmed underscore. And then I have a Tumblr, which I post everything that I write. You'll find my work there, which is, and other like stories that are of interest to me and anything about Zinedine Zidane. Um, it <laughs> will be found at, uh, you know, tales from a hijabi footballer at tum- dot tumblr.com. Um, so it's footybedsheets.tumblr.com. Okay. Um, and we'll, yeah. I'll, I'll have links to these, you know, when the, post gets up in like two and a half months. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, go on. <laughs> no, so that that's it. Um, and I'm currently working on my first book. And um, it's just sort of like a series of stories right now. And um, just, you know, related to, I like storytelling. So that kind of thing in moments, sure. pivotal moments through sports and through the work I've done. And um, so I'm doing that and I'm doing a bit of uh, public speaking in different universities and stuff. And that's, that's good. So that's exciting. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, first of all, everybody listening, subscribe to burn it all down. Um, it, it seriously is so good. I, I will say, and, and I think I can say this, um, because we can have civil discourse that, you know, I don't always agree, mm-hmm. but, um, I usually do. Um, and, uh, even when I don't agree, I learn new things that help put things into a different um, context or or point of view that I had never thought about. And I, I think that that's what civil discourse is all about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, learning about each other and and trying to see things from different point of views. And um, But for the most part, I'm usually like, yeah, yeah, burn it! Because that's what they do. They burn things at the end. Um, and, um, you know, I'm just so thankful for you to come on and, and talk about, um, you know, your career and life and, and some of these issues that I know are near and dear to your heart. Oh, totally. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm just leveling the playing field is also, you know, it's the type of work that you do and you're amplifying others. And it's so, so much appreciated. big thank you again to Shireen for being on LTPF. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with her and could have talked to her for hours. We were a little um, squeezed for time when we were recording, but um, I'm hoping maybe I can get her on again because she's just so smart and there are so many interesting issues um, in sport and about um, Muslim women and um, all of these really interesting topics that she delves into. So, uh, again, thank you to her. Thank you to all of you for listening. And, um, I hope you enjoyed it as always, please feel free to shoot me an email at ltpfpod at gmail.com or a message through the Twitterverse. Um, we are at ltpfpod on Twitter. Facebook and Instagram. And my personal Twitter is at Bobby Sue. Uh, and <laughs> you can go to the website. It's not up to date. I'm sorry. I keep apologizing every week for this. One of these days I'll get it in order, but it's ltpfpod.com. Um, I will have show notes um, and links to these things in there. If you aren't already a subscriber, please subscribe. And if you are, please rate and review. Um, The way that new people find me and this podcast is through the crazy little algorithms that I don't understand, but it depends on rating and reviewing. So if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment to do that, that would be fantastic. And this podcast lives in Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and RadioInfluence.com. I appreciate each and every one of you, and I hope you are having a great week. Bye.